Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when once... You have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, But now let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. The greatest candle of history was the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything about that was a scandal. It was an offense that Jesus should die. 
How can the Son of God die? And some have been greatly offended to find at the center of Christianity there is a cross. Everything about that black scene of Golgotha was a scandal. It was a scandal that they stripped him and left him exposed to the mockery of a crowd. It was a scandal that they mocked him and taunted him while he died. It was a scandal that they gambled for his garment while he died. It was a scandal that they pierced his flesh. From the mockery of his trials to the torture of his slow and agonizing death, everything about the cross is an outrage. But one of the greatest scandals of all took place in a place that you at least like, likely find it, in the upper room. You'd think of all places, wouldn't you, that this would be a place where Jesus could find release from the suffering of his time. And you'd think that of all people that he could ever be around, that this group of disciples would be people where he could find comfort and encouragement and release from sorrow. But you would be wrong. For one of the greatest scandals occurs in the upper room in all of the cross experience. And so they came there to take the, the feast of the Passover, the greatest of all Jewish feasts, the, the uh, celebration, the commemoration of their escape from Egypt, the festival of their constitution as the people of God. Ignatius of Loyola uh, encourages us to do what he calls to to relive the events of the gospel by entering into them as if you were living them as they happened. And so he instructs his students to what he calls present themselves in the gospel. And by using all of their imagination, using all of their senses, they're able to see and touch and feel and taste and smell the event that is recorded. And so I want you to present yourself with me in that upper room. And we go into this little room that is so modestly decorated, just a, just a pillow or two, past the jars that are sitting there by the door that are filled with water so that every honored guest could have his feet washed and be refreshed. And we are hot and sweaty and dusty and tired but no one washes our feet, for no one will. And then we recline around a little table about two feet off the floor, not like da Vinci's picture of all of the disciples facing the artist, but we're reclining, each person on his left arm. And the floor is hard, but we're used to it. And we notice that on the right in the place of honor is, Mark, is John, the youngest, leaning over against Jesus, and on his left is Judas in the second place of honor. And as our eyes scan the room, we see Simon in the corner part of the group, and he's motioning to, to John to try to get his attention, to get him to ask Jesus a question. And you can smell the faint smell of death, and you can hear the low groan of doubt, and you can feel the splashing water in love as he splashes water in love on your feet. And he begins to wash them. 
and you feel the soft texture of the towel as he dries them, and you taste the bread that's been dipped in gravy. Oh, what a place here of all places. With this group, surely Jesus can find release from the suffering that's just outside the door. But here, one of the greatest scandals of all occurs, the scandal of sin and weakness in the close followers of Christ. And it seems so today. The greatest scandal of Christianity today is the scandal of the church. Someone said that the church is the greatest evangelistic mission field there is. Someone else said it is the church that needs to be saved. Some preacher spoke for many people and expressed their feeling when he was asked one day the familiar question, how is your work going? And he replied as follows, well, our attendance, our enrollment is is increasing, our budget is larger. We have just finished a successful building program. My people are loving, they care for me. They give me a nice home in which to live, a, a marvelous salary, a beautiful car to drive. They express a great deal of personal affection to me. But when all is said and done, he said, I really can't see that I'm doing that much for the kingdom. My people refuse to do anything about vital issues. They are worldly and indulgent. The secular tone of life is everywhere, and I am forever opposed by indifference, and my people don't love one another. I tell you, that is the scandal of the church. And if you'll think with me just a moment, I think we can see that Passover meal that took place centuries ago in light of a few relevant terms. The scandal of the upper room is blindness to the greatness of the moment. Holman Hunt has a marvelous painting entitled The Shadow of Death. It depicts Jesus in the carpenter shop in Nazareth. It's been a long and strenuous day and the dying sun is setting in the west and its last rays are streaming through an open door. And Jesus rises from his cramped position at the carpenter's bench and he stretches out his hands to stretch. And the rays catch his image and silhouette it on the back wall behind him, the shadow of a cross. And in a striking way, the artist reminds us that the cross has always been there. It was there from the beginning. When he walked from the wilderness of temptation, having resisted the impulse to escape it, the cross stared him in the face. And the shadows of the cross deepened at Caesarea Philippi and opposition mushroomed. The Pharisees despised him because he challenged their legalism and their narrow thinking and there's nothing that man fears more than a thought. And the Jews couldn't countenance his love for all men. They thought they had him in a box somewhere and they put little holes in the box so he could get air and they took the box down to the temple and they thought, he, they, thought they had him there but he kept getting out of the box going out where the publicans and sinners ate. And the crowds turned against him because he made such stringent demands upon them and finally the clouds thickened and burst upon Jesus. It was that moment now 
But it was not just the moment of human treachery. It was the moment of human redemption. For in his own words, Jesus said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. I've lived for this moment. I have longed for this moment. When God created the heavens and the earth, he planned for this moment. The, the Passover meal had been observed by, for centuries by the Jews, sometimes carelessly, sometimes beautifully. But now that Passover was about to disappear. The old was going out and the new was coming and new life was about to burst upon the earth like a new dawn. And so when he passed that third cup of the Passover, he spoke of a redemption he was about to achieve that would be written in the pages of universal history. What a moment it was. And he instituted the new Passover. And the broken bread was to symbolize his brokenness at the cross. And he took the cup that was, that was filled with red wine to symbolize the blood which he was to shed. What a, what a moment that was. And for centuries, Christians have taken that bread and that cup in all kinds of circumstances, in all kinds of places. In the amphitheaters while the lions roared, on the beaches at Dunkirk, in the little country church where the smell of fleshly, freshly cut June grass just drifts through the window, in the great cathedrals in all of their glory, month after month, week after week, a thousand, a hundred thousand successive Sundays, men have taken this new Passover that symbolizes and remembers that the greatest moment of God's love is the moment of His death. And you would think that, that of all people, these men would, would, would understand that, but they didn't. Of all people, you would think these men would know that the cross was just a day away, that they would grasp the full meaning of his death, but they didn't. And so they took the bread and they drank the cup without really grasping the full significance of what was happening. That scandal remains the same. It is not merely that the impact of the cross has never really gripped us. It's not just that. It's not just that we handle things carelessly, sacred and sublime, prayers and praise and sermons. It's not just that. It's, ju it's that the full significance of the redemptive event of God has never really gripped us. That's the scandal. That we can sing the songs of the cross without a sob. That's the scandal. That we can read of the death of Jesus through dry eyes, that's the scandal. And my heart leaped within me as this man this morning, when he came to the moment to pray of thanksgiving for the death of Christ, he, he was emotional and he broke and wept. Because the scandal of the church is that few of us can do that anymore. J. Wallace Hamilton told about the great ecumenical council that met the moderator of that council was a Roman Catholic bishop and he was dressed in a beautiful black robe. He was a portly man with a huge rotund stomach. 
And he was sitting on the platform and around his neck on a gold cross, or on a gold chain, was a magnificent cross. J. Wallace Hamilton said that while one man stood there to speak on the subject of the theology of grace, that man cleaned his fingernails with the corner of the cross. That's the scandal of the church. It is, it is the scandal of the upper room in the second place is blindness to spiritual things. For after all, that was why the meaning of the cross and this moment never really gripped those men. They were earthbound. They were so enamored by the physical and the material, they missed it. They still thought of the kingdom of God as a physical thing. And so when Jesus, as you noticed in the text, told them, talked to them about taking purse and script and sword, they thought while all the time he was talking about arming themselves for a spiritual battle, they thought he was talking about a physical encounter. And they said, well, look here, Lord, we already have two swords. Maybe they got them off the wall behind them. Or maybe they just picked up two butcher knives that were lying on the table. And with great sickness of heart, Jesus said, it is enough, that is to say, there's no use talking anymore. You still don't get the point. And that scandal remains the same. We're so earthbound. We're so enamored with things physical and material. We're so caught up in the things of life that spiritual realities continue to evade us and we have no eyes for God. And I can just hear Jesus saying in essence, Oh, blind men, don't you see it? Can't you understand, you blind disciples, that life is just a matter of a few days and the things of life will disappear? Can't you just hear him saying it? Don't you see, gentlemen, when death is just outside the door, the things of life aren't that important. Um, in John Powell's book, The Secret of Staying in Love, he has a passage entitled, An Entry from a Schoolgirl's. And, it, and, it, and it's, the, it's the account of what a young college student thought it might be like if she had one day to live. And this is what she wrote. If I had one day to live, I'd call all the people that I love to make sure they knew I loved them. And I'd play all the records that I like to listen to, and I'd sing all the songs that have meant the most to me, and I'd dance. I would dance all night. Must have not been a Baptist, but I, I would dance all night. And she said, I'd look at the blue sky and feel the warm sunlight. And I'd tell the moon and the stars how lovely and beautiful they are. And I'd say goodbye to my, the little things that I own, my clothes, my books, my stuff. And I'd thank God for the wonderful gift of life, and I would die in His arms. You think things are so important? 
You think you're so wealthy? We'll see how important things are and we'll see how wealthy you are in 10 million years. The blindness of the upper room in the third place is that the betrayer is here. Now that's the thing that has amazed me the most. That the son of perdition, the child of Satan, the betrayer of God's love is here in this room, in this upper room, in this group here. His hand touches mine on the table, he said. He dips with me in the gravy, he said. He. Now you would not be surprised if a Pharisee did it or a Sadducee or even a pagan who had never heard him teach and had never seen him love. But in this group, a betrayer of the love of God, surely not incredible. Incredible. But it is true that often in the inner circle of his closest friends, he is the most betrayed. And that's the scandal of the church. And someone gave a Jew a New Testament. And the Jew read the New Testament from one cover to the next and said, that's the most marvelous, most wonderful book I have ever read. But tell me, sir, what do these Christians have in common with that book? The scandal of the upper room is the struggle of place. Now, just in case your mind has drifted a little bit, I want us to go back and present ourselves in that upper room. Smell that smell of death. Hear that groan of doubt. Feel love as it splashed with the water on our feet and the texture of the towel. Taste the bread dipped in gravy. And listen to the sounds around us. And all of a sudden, the man next to us, we hear him say, what right does John think he has to lie on Jesus' right hand? Does he think he's first? And there's a kind of a roar, a grumble beginning. Sounds like dogs snarling over a bone until the louder, until it becomes so loud that they're almost shouting back and forth at each other. And the text says that a strife arose among them. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It does not mean something that just happened all of a sudden. It's a word that means the love of quarreling. The love of quarreling. It's something that had been going on for six months at least. And it was getting worse. And even in the upper room on the night of that great moment of human redemption, it was reaching its apex. And they loved it. And so they quarreled and snarled at each other. And all, of all places, among, all, among these people, it was going on. They were not asking, am I great in being what I can be? There began to arise in the soul of each of them a desire to be greater than everybody else there. And so they ask, who is the greatest? Who's number one? 
But I want you to know that Christianity has forever been hindered by that ringing question, who is the greatest? For there is as much struggle for place in the church as there is anywhere on earth. I took a group of men, mainly deacons, in a farmer pastorate out on a retreat. We went out to south part of uh, uh, Fort Worth down to uh, a camp in Waco, near Waco, Texas. It was a beautiful setting. Everybody was so happy. And we got there on Friday afternoon and unloaded, and we were expecting a great uh, weekend retreat with these men, just the finest men. We had our dinner, and we were getting ready for um, some recreation, and we had some recreation, and we got into the cabin. It was devotional time. And one of the men got up, and he looked right at me, and he said, he started crying. He said, Pastor, I've got something against you. And I've just got to tell you about it. I, my heart just sank. I couldn't imagine what was going on. And I said, well, what on earth is wrong? I mean, it got deathly quiet, just about like it did right then. <laughs> and he said, you don't ever call on me to pray. And I said, oh, Joe, I, I call on you to pray. And he said, well, you call on me to pray on Wednesday night. He said, I want to pray on Sunday morning. And I thought, oh, my soul. And I said, well, Joe, I'm sorry. You know, I'll call on you to pray on Sunday morning. The Lord is a marvelous Lord, isn't he? He wants our greatness to be measured by our service. And he, and he said, I want you to be great in what you do for others. I want you to be great in lifting a little misery from someone else. I want you to be great in doing a, in doing a little more for someone else. I, I want your greatness to be measured in service. And when we understand that, we might understand it might be an answer to some of the questions that plague us. One being, why doesn't God do more for us if He's really alive? The answer to that is, maybe our bodies and what happens to them is not His chief concern. For life is not organized around us and our privileges. We're here to serve. And the scandal of the upper room is that if I'm not first, I don't want to be there, finally. The scandal of the upper room is the weakness of the strongest. I mean, look at this. Here, here were Jesus' followers. I mean, the men who had seen everything he'd done heard everything he'd said. They had been with, in fact, he said, you've stood with me in trials. A and the strongest followers of Christ were the people right there and how weak they were. They were so weak that one of them betrayed him. One of them lost courage and denied him. And all of them ran away and went home. 
Oh, they were bold while there was no danger. They were courageous while there were no threats. But when danger came, they thought only of their skin and the only one who had the courage to go through it was Jesus himself. But let's don't throw stones at them. I think of myself and the weakness of my own life and my desire to save face. And I have a feeling that most of us today are more concerned about our own skins than anybody else's. We're so afraid that we'll be unpopular. And we're so afraid of anything unpleasant. And so we compromise Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. For if you read on in this marvelous book, you'll find that these men who were so fearful, even Simon the leader, became bold and courageous because they got focused, they had their eyes focused on the living Lord. My prayer this morning is this, is that we would capture the greatness of this moment that God would remove that scale from our eyes to sense how important this moment is and how important spiritual realities are to make us aware of our own weakness, our own tendency to betray Him and betray His love and our own lack of service and then grant us the grace courage to do what he wants us to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this moment, the end of this message, having sensed your presence among us, having heard you speak, we come now to that moment of decision and truth where we respond positively or negatively to what we've heard. Grant us, Father, a vision of what you want from us. Should any of us you desire to come forward to public demonstration of our decision, I pray that you'll give us the courage to do that now. Because I pray in his name, even Jesus. Now our invitations are like this. Listen carefully. The first invitation this morning is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. We want you to be saved. We don't want a single person, not a single child, not a single adult to go out of this place today lost and separated from God, bound for a separation in hell. We want you to be saved. Jesus died on that scandalous cross in order that all of your sin might be forgiven, that you might be born again. Oh, we want you to be saved. 
And we all become the child of God the same way, just by giving our heart and life Him by faith, and receiving, repenting of our sin, trusting Jesus and Jesus only. Second invitation is for you to come in response to the leadership of God to place your life here. It's a scandal that you're not serving God. The third invitation is for those of us who are Christians. But we've been so timid in our Christian life. We've been so negligent in our Christian walk. It's a scandal that among us is a betrayer of God's love. You come to say, I want to make things right with God. Would you do that? Oh, we want you to. We've prayed all week that this very moment, this moment now, would be everything God wanted it to be, and it will if you'll do what he wants you to do. Let's stand. We'll sing. We invite you to come.